Hebrews 10. Okay, let's uh, pray and then we'll, we'll study. Father, we pray that as we come now and we conclude this chapter, Lord, that you would strengthen us, enrich us, empower us by your spirit through the preaching of your word. May we, Lord, be better able to live and to serve you. And uh, Father, may you encourage us this day through your word. And Lord, wherever we are in our Christian walks right now, whether we need to be rebuked or encouraged, whether we feel overwhelmed, Lord, may you speak to us today, we pray. May your spirit who inspired these words illuminate them for us today, shine light upon them, that they might speak to our minds and to our hearts, and that you might be glorified through it, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, last week we got through the warning passages, and I'm so glad we did. I wouldn't want to spend two weeks on warnings. Um, this week we're picking up in verse 32, verse 32 through to verse 39. We're concluding the chapter. And um, if you weren't here last week and you uh, ever get troubled by these warning passages, I encourage you to catch up. The, the video is available online, as is the audio. Um, but we're now picking up in verse 32. So just to give us a little bit of context, um, for those who haven't been with us, he has concluded in the first nine and a half chapters the essence of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is superior. He is better. In Christ, we now have a better covenant. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better high priest. And Jesus is superior in every way to the old covenant system. And he encourages them then. Uh, therefore, he, um, when we started chapter 10 and verse 19, verse 19, we get these um, exhortations to live in light of the new covenant promises. And then in verse 26, we had this warning passage where he warns them of the consequences of not living that way and in light of that. But fortunately, rather than ending with a warning, we now in these last verses of this chapter... Um, we now have some encouragement. So this week's sermon, we're looking at these encouragements, picking up in verse 32. And what I really hope you're going to see is this, okay? Most of you, if you know your Bibles even vaguely well, will know that Hebrews 11 is famous because it is a chapter all about faith. Faith, it's the faith chapter of the Bible. This sets us up for that. Hebrews 11 is not in isolation. It's part of the flow of thought. And this is going to really nicely set us up. And you're going to see why Hebrews 11 follows on from this. Why the issue of faith follows on. So let's have a look at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggles, uh, hard, a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you know, sometimes I think we get it wrong 
in that we think that the Christian walk is just this, this process whereby we start off and we're a bit clueless and then we grow in faith and we grow in faith and we grow in faith and we just become stronger and stronger in faith. Well, you haven't got to be a Christian for many years to realize that it doesn't work quite like that. And, and so often you get young Christians in the honeymoon period of their faith who will say, oh, I just love Jesus. I just, he's just so wonderful and I'll, just, I'll do anything for you, Lord. I'll, I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. And then a couple of years later, you find them flat on their face, just giving up, walking with the Lord. And what he's dealing with here in these believers, as we know, is he's dealing with people who are Jewish by um, background, but have, by their faith, become believers in the Messiahship of Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and they have become believers of this new covenant that was promised for centuries. And they are now in this situation where, due to persecution, they are tempted to apostatize, to walk away from living the Christian life, to do what we might call today to backslide, to opt for a more comfortable life and go back to the old covenant way of living to avoid that persecution. And what he's saying to them is, you should be encouraged because you know that you can do this. You know that you can walk as you should because you did. When they first got saved, look at this in verse 32. Recall the former days when you after, uh, the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You see, their honeymoon period wasn't a honeymoon period when everything went well. There was suffering from day one. And yet, because they understood that Jesus was the Messiah, because they understood that the new covenant that had been promised to their people had now come after century and century and century of waiting, they rejoiced in that and they walked as they should. And they endured the sufferings. So after warning them in the previous section and saying, come on, you don't give up. If you give up, now we're saying, and you know that you can do this. Because you have. There was suffering, there was struggle, there was trials, and you were able to do that. The word here for remembrance, recall, look back, means to carefully think back, to reconstruct in their minds, to, to remember how it was, to reminisce. And so in this, in this early section of this passage, we have here, in a sense, in the context, a first um, deterrent, if you like, not to fall into apostasy, not to backslide. And that is to remember the early days of your faith. This is a, a routine thing if you're familiar with the Lament Psalms. If you're not familiar with the Lament Psalms, I wish that you were. Go, go look in Psalm 40 and then progress through from there and you'll find a, a good few that are worth looking at. And in those Lament Psalms so often, it is when the, the psalmist says, you know, I, I remember how it used to be. It's an essential part of dealing with trials, of dealing with the temptation to compromise, is to look back to when they were able, uh, when they were 
willing, perhaps is better, to walk as they should. Their suffering here, as it's described, is both direct and indirect. Um, it says, uh, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. That's really important. This idea that somebody else is suffering and it's none of our business is so unchristian, it's ridiculous. We are a body. I don't want to turn to Ephesians 4, I'll get lost there, but you know, we've, we've been there many times. That there is, there is one faith, one spirit, one Lord, one baptism. We are one body who share together. And the path of maturity, this is the most important lesson I think for the church today from Ephesians 4. And I keep saying this, the path of maturity is not a solo journey. You cannot mature in your faith alone. It is not possible by definition of maturity. God gives us the apostles and prophets and their ministry and evangelists who are gifted at, at, at bringing the gospel and people responding in salvation and pastors and teachers who equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of ministry. And we do the work of ministry and what happens as we do the work of ministry, we, we mature into the image of Christ. So maturity happens as I minister to you and you minister to me and you, you minister to one to another. And so when someone in the church is rejoicing, we rejoice with them. When someone in the church is suffering, we lament with them. Because that's what you do in a healthy family. And that's part of our maturing process, is being part of that. And so when there is someone who is suffering for their faith, you may not be suffering for yours, but you are, because you need to associate yourselves with them. There was, uh, you know, you guys uh, who, who've been here a while know a little bit of our history, but we had a terrible time for many, many years before we came here. And I tell you, when, you've, when you are treated badly and when you've, you are struggling day by day just to keep going, you learn very quickly, very quickly, the people who have maturity in their faith, those who will come alongside rather than those, you know, and I, I lost count of people in difficult times who would say, yeah, I just don't want to get involved. When there are matters of right and wrong, truth and falsehood, saying I don't want to get involved is getting involved. Saying I don't want to have to decide is making a decision. We have to stand with right. We have to stand with truth. We always do. And here you see in this text this idea of um, that, that, that people were being publicly exposed to both reproach and affliction. So, yeah, ridicule and mockery and, and spoken of badly, and then actual affliction, things bad being done to them, loss of their possessions, as we'll see in due course. And it's, and it's those who were doing it, uh, sorry, who were receiving that, that suffering, that treatment, and those who were partners with them. Be partners. Be partners with those 
who suffer. And he goes on and he says in the next verse, along the same lines, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So there is compassion, which by the way, some people translate and speak of it as, a, as an internal agony. I think compassion is a word, you know, we, we, we Christianese words, don't we? <laughs> I'm not a fan of Christianese. Um, we all learn to speak it fluently. And one of the downsides of Christianese is there are words that just fly by our ears without us really paying much attention because we're so familiar with them. I think compassion can be one of those words that we, we hear it so often we don't really think about it. So I prefer the word empathy. I think empathy makes us think about it a bit more. We're, we're, we're associating ourselves with the sufferer. We're coming alongside them. And then we ourselves suffer. And then hopefully those people will be coming alongside us. I, I want to read, just, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to turn there and read to you briefly. But I can't really deal with this concept without reading this glorious passage in 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1 begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You know, so much of the Christian life is just mimicking to other people the way that we've been treated by God, isn't it? The Lord's Prayer famously, you know, forgive other, you know, um, you know, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There's this, this idea that forgiveness is the most natural Christian thing. Why? Because we're forgiven. And here he talks about God being the God of all comfort. That God empathised with our plight. He saw us trapped in our sin without hope. Enemies against him. Angry with him railing against him, rebelling against him. What do we do when someone's angry with us? When someone misunderstands us, they rail against us, they treat us badly, they disregard us. God empathised. He came alongside, he saw our plight, and he loved us in the midst of it. So that's why we as Christians need to be empathizers, empaths. We need to be people who think of others, care of others, because that's how God has treated us. Are they treating us, you know, horrifically? Sure, that's okay. <laughs> we did that to God and he still, he still gave us comfort. So we will give comfort to those who are undeserving, not just those who are deserving. To God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. Why does God allow us to suffer? The number one reason I think that God allows suffering is so that we can comfort others in their suffering. 
And it works for good and for bad, you know. There's times in my suffering where there's been people who've loved me and come alongside me and I'm off. Lord, thank you so much for them. And then when I see others suffer, I have to mimic that. But then there's been others who maybe haven't done such a good job and I need to be like, okay, I don't want to be doing that to somebody else. And so we learn through that process so that we are better able to comfort others. And you see the picture that Paul paints there. He's saying, look, God has all comfort and he comforts you so that you can then comfort others. And when you're comforting those other people, who's comforting them? Well, God is comforting them through you. And so this whole process of comfort continues, and we're all loving one another. This, again, is church. This is what it looks like. And so that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about this compassion on those who are in prison, um, and those who themselves are suffering and losing their property. Man, you know, this is a right in the heart here isn't it you know someone someone you know takes a little something from you I mean you know someone takes your place in a line of traffic it can be a challenge for many of us and yet here they are with people plundering their possessions people robbing them stealing from them that's a hard thing to respond to with joy <laughs> is it not if you've ever been ripped off you'll know how that feels and there is a sinking feeling of realization <laughs> we've had that many times in our lives there was one time in england where there was a guy whose guys from our church bumped into him in town and they said hey pastor there's there's this guy and he's a christian and he he's lost his he's american but he's we were in england at the time he's lost his passport he needs some help and um, uh, he just needs somewhere to say while they get his passport sorted out. And I'm like, oh yeah, sure, we'll have to stay. <laughs> we, we had this guy in our home. Turns out he was a con artist and he'd done this thing multiple times, but he didn't plan on our family. Because what he normally did is he'd be in a house for one night, rob the house and boom, off he goes. But he, he came to our house and they had to drive him down to our house because we lived in the countryside in the middle of nowhere. Our zip code had like three houses in it. I mean, I, seriously, I kid you not. Like three or four houses in that. We were surrounded by countryside and he had no car, so he was stuck. But we just thought he was this nice guy. Kids were playing with him, had a good time. We played games with our kids. We had, we had fun with him. He was a really nice guy. We had a great time. And then finally, he got an opportunity to be alone and he robbed us blind. And it was, it's just, you get this sinking feeling in your stomach. And here, in this text, there's a speaking of people plundering your property and joyfully accepting it. Why, why, why would you joyfully accept someone stealing your stuff? And here is the crucial thing. Here is the crucial thing. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This has been his argument and his theme in Hebrews. You had this, this is better. You had that, that's better. You have a better covenant. You have a better uh, uh, priest, uh, high priest. You have a, a better sacrifice. He says, you have better possessions now. And they're abiding. They can't 
be taken away from you. You, if you're wealthy, can lose your wealth in a moment, in a heartbeat. In this digital age, you can lose it with a click of a mouse through theft or trickery or whatever else. But the possession that we have in Christ, the riches, the abundant riches of his grace that are poured out upon us, the truths that we've been studying for nine and a half chapters of Hebrews, the fact that he's given us salvation, redemption by his blood, the fact that he's, in, he's in, given us his indwelling Holy Spirit as a guarantee that he will complete that redemption, that one day that we will be able to be without sin, redeemed and glorious and with him for all eternity. That can never be taken. There is nothing that any, no, no mouse click, no trick of the pen, no sleight of tongue, there is nothing that can be done to remove those blessings from us. So, so stable are those blessings that Paul in Ephesians 1 speaks of the indwelling Holy Spirit as being God's down payment or deposit, a seal saying that God, that's God saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to finish this job. Paul in Romans talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Do you understand? That means nothing that you can do. You can't mess up your own salvation. No sin, no fall, no failing, no nothing. What you have is infinitely better. He's just warned them and said to them, look, guys, if you're going to go back on this, there are going to be consequences. And for them, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was a very real, very pressing, and very imminent thing that was about to happen. And as I said last week, there will always be consequences of sin. But let me say this very clearly. The other side of the coin is, is that whatever consequences come from our sin, and they may be great, and they may be burdensome, and they may bring us great regret, the one consequence that will never come from our sin is us losing our salvation and the possession that we have of blessings in Jesus Christ. Let me be abundantly clear on that. Because I was a, a sinner well before Christ came and saved me. So me sinning now is going to make no difference to that whole equation, right? And so, we have now a possession that is greater, better, and an abiding one. And thus, we need to hold lightly the things in this life. You know what? There's nothing, uh, nothing godly about poverty. There's nothing godly about riches. It's not a sin to be rich, not a sin to be poor. But what every single one of us must do is hold lightly. If you don't have much, hold your desire lightly. If you have a lot, hold what you have lightly. Because it is nothing next to the blessings that we all share and that we all have. Therefore, verse 35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
This is the idea here is that their confidence isn't just them being bold and I am confident, but that, that there is something in which they have confidence. You, you've, you've been through this, you've been through this persecution, you've, you've, you've stood alongside others in their persecution, you've done this because of Christ. Keep your confidence in him. Keep your confidence in him. Don't throw it away because it has great reward. Now, in the previous section, the emphasis was on the consequences of sin. And you see here in this passage with the encouragement, he's starting to shift now and he's giving us the other side of the coin, which is there is great reward for doing what's right. We need to get away from the idea that there is no consequence eternally for our sin and for our obedience. Now, I, I understand. I would much rather err on the side of salvation by grace alone. It makes no difference whether we sinned a little or sinned a lot. We're all worthy of judgment and we're all saved by the same blood of Christ. Of course this is true. But there is the judgment seat of Christ. There are those who will face Christ at the judgment seat. Literally in Greek, it's, it's the bema. It's the, it's the place where awards were given out. I don't like judgment seat. I think it's, a, it's an unhelpful phrase for us to understand what the text is saying. I prefer the phrase podium because it was the word that was used where awards were given out at the end of the, the great Greek games, the Athenian games and the Olympics and, and Corinthian games and whatever else. But the, the, the wreaths, the crowns, the prizes were given out to the athletes who were successful and who competed. When we stand before Christ, there will be things that we have done in our lives that we shouldn't have done. And they will be burnt up, we're told, like wood, hay and stubble. Just burnt up in the fire. It's a, a wasted life, shall we say. But there will be those who come and what they've done, they've done with their sin, with their imperfections. But the precious gifts of service that they offer are purified through that same fire and they're rewarded for eternity. Every act we do, every time we have compassion on someone in prison, in trials, suffering, every time we endure in the midst of trials, our faith, every time we're put in situations. I've told you loads of times, we look at these Hebrews and we're like, duh, why would they go back? Why would they turn, go back to an Old Testament sacrificial system after Jesus has come? Why would they do that? And yet every day, we in our own lives are tempted to compromise. And every temptation to compromise is unique to us. There are things that I might fall in, that you go, what a ridiculous thing to stumble over. And there are things that you might stumble in that I would think were equally ridiculous. Our trials are tough. And every time we stand firm, and every time we choose Christ, and every time we do the right thing, there are rewards. Not rewards where someone puts a, a, some, you know, 
cash in your back pocket, not a reward where you get like a bonus from work, not a reward where you're lifted up on people applaud you, but something that is going to last you for all eternity. Why would you want to be rewarded in this life? I mean, honestly, if you're over the age of 25 or 30, surely you can see the evidence that your body's not going to be around forever, right? Why would you want to be rewarded in this life in, in some sort of way that is going is to die with you? But because Christ rose from the dead and he is the first fruit of resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, we are assured that we too, because we are in Christ, will rise from the dead. I know you believe that. If you've been baptized, the guy, when he put you under the water, he lifted you up again, right? I know I do. I haven't drowned anyone on baptism duty. Do you know why I lift you back up again, other than the lawsuit that would follow? The reason I lift you up is because Christ rose and you've risen in Christ. So we understand that his resurrection is the first fruits, so and that one day we will be glorified. And the rewards that we will have in our glorified bodies for eternity, which is a long time, those rewards are earned by what we do now and what we don't do now. When we're treated badly and we love, when we're plundered and we rejoice, those kind of decisions will have echoes, ripples through into eternity. Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Four, verse 36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of uh, God, you may receive what is promised. Not just a lovely verse. Do I need to believe something different to to know more. I mean, we all want to grow in our understanding, want to grow in our faith, but I tell you what I need day to day is I need endurance. I need to just keep on going, keep on standing firm, keep standing on that confidence, keep hanging in there, keep choosing right. And some days it's easy, right? Some days the, the sun is shining and everything's going well and, you know, yeah, just put that worship CD on again and, oh, hallelujah, I'm so grateful for my salvation, isn't life wonderful? And then you see your fellow believer and you're like, why are you down? Isn't God good? You become that really annoying person, you know? And other days, it's just not like that. Your Bibles might as well be locked. When you read it, you can't get anything from it. It's like being in the desert. That's where the rewards really come, folks. Just digging in, enduring, patiently pressing on, doing the right thing when there is no sight of reward in the immediate future. You just keep on going. You just keep pressing on. Do you know what? That's faith. That's what faith is. As he's about to point out. 4, verse 37. And now he quotes this verse from Habakkuk, okay? 
So this is our Habakkuk link. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Very different from the isolated mention of that same verse you get from Paul in Galatians and Romans. Look at the introduction. He quotes a little bit more. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. We'll make a note of that in a minute. Let's flick to Habakkuk. I'm going to try and be quick if we do this. For those of you who aren't regulars, whenever we have an Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament, we always go back to the Old Testament and we look at it in context. So if you're looking for Habakkuk, if your fingers don't immediately find it, it is a little book, you just go to Matthew and turn backwards from Matthew. Once you've got Matthew, you'll find Habakkuk as long as you go back slowly. <laughs> Pretty easy to find. But let's look at it together. Habakkuk. I had uh, Stefano read to us this morning from it for our reading. We'll spend a lot more time in it tonight. I just want to uh, really lead us up to what the context is to this famous verse about the righteous living by faith. Habakkuk, in the book of Habakkuk, in chapter 1, he really is dealing with a very common complaint. You'll see it elsewhere in Scripture, Psalm 73. A psalm of Asaph immediately comes to mind. Um, but you see this, this, this common complaint, which is, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Will you not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And, and so he, he's dealing with this question, which is, why is there suffering? Why is this going on? And like Job, he gets interaction with God. Many of the prophets, we don't see that. We just see the prophets prophesying, you know. But Jeremiah, Jonah, you know, you get this interaction and you have this with Habakkuk and God answers. But the issue here is, and I tell you, you know, the first question I had when I was looking at 2 Corinthians in the midst of my suffering years ago was, okay, so I suffer so that I can comfort others while they suffer, but hey God, wouldn't the easiest thing be just not to have suffering? <laughs> right? I mean, okay, so I'm suffering so I can help them when they're suffering. Why are they suffering? Oh, so they can help others with suffering. Why don't we just deal with this whole suffering thing? We don't need this kind of going around the houses stuff going on, do we? And this is the cry. It's like, how long is this going to go on? This injustice. People being treated badly. People who are, who are doing wrong at winning and people who are doing right seemingly losing. How much longer is this going to go on? And so that's really what's going on. And God is, um, his sovereignty uh, is really at the key issue here in this whole section. And uh, we will deal with chapter one and, and God's response tonight when we look at that passage. Uh, verse 12, which is where I got uh, Stefano to start reading from. Are you not from everlasting, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. And so he talks in this section of the sovereignty of God. And having talked about suffering generally, he's looking at a specific thing here, which was key to Israel's history at that time, which is the, uh, the issue of idolatry. Look at um, verse... 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. 
He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And so he's talking about how God is just, this is continual dealing with the nations where God is, 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 is dealing with them and gathering them and is harsh to them. And how long is this going to go on? And the thing I want to focus on in the context here is, is chapter 2 and verse 2 when Lord finally answers. Yahweh answered me, he said, write the vision, make it plain on my tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. I will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. He says, this is the answer. I want it to be really clear for everyone, the idea that someone's running and they'll still be able to see it, you know? If I'm running past you and you hold up your Bible, I'm not going to be able to read it, but I can see a billboard, can't I? Right? It's that kind of thing. It makes it clear to see. And he says, it seems slow but it's going to happen. Behold, verse 4, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous one shall live by his faith. The picture God paints here is this. That the one who is puffed up, the one who isn't living righteously, he doesn't want to wait. He doesn't want to trust in God. He doesn't want to see things come to fruition. But the righteous one lives by faith. The righteous one here in this context is the one who sees God's dealing with the nations, who sees injustice, who sees these problems and says, I know who God is and I trust him. And because I trust him, I'm going to keep on doing what's right. These people aren't doing what's right, and they seem to be getting away with it. These people are doing wrong, and they're getting away with it. We have to trust God when everything's falling around apart from us. I've told you this before. Remember teaching at a Bible college, hundreds, hundreds of students aged between 17 and 22 mostly. And you'd watch them at times of worship. Oh, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Wherever you lead me, I'm going to go. Tears in their eyes. Some of them would kneel down in worship. And I would smile wryly at them. Not, not critical, not cynical even. Just with the benefit of maturity and hindsight, having been there. Several years on, I know many of them have backslidden. Many who said, I will follow you to the ends of the earth, couldn't get outside their front gate. You see, living by faith 
is not when you're surrounded by a whole bunch of other Christians and everything's going well and you're like, hey Jesus, hallelujah, and the band's playing and everything's in the right key and the right tune and your heart's lifted up and you're, yeah, I'm going to follow. That's not following Jesus. Following Jesus is when you get sick. Following Jesus is when your best friend betrays you. Following Jesus is when other people who are cheating and aren't playing by the rules get blessed and you try and do things right and you end up losing out. Following Jesus is when people persecute you for your faith. Following Jesus is about when everything that can go wrong does go wrong and every reason that could possibly exist for you to turn your back and say, well, I tried. Every excuse is there in place and you say, I don't get it. I don't know. I don't understand. I can't possibly think why God would do something like this, allow this to happen. But I know this, that he is sovereign and that he is good. I'm going to pray that in my prayers before church, after church, till the day I die. You'll be so sick of me saying it and I don't care at all. He is sovereign and he is good. Because when I went through the worst trials in my life, I had to somehow try and cling on to those truths. And they were, they were just falling out from my fingers in the midst of a whirlwind of things that you, that you couldn't have dreamt of happening to you and you just have to remember he is sovereign he is good he is sovereign he is good and i know who he is and i know i can trust him and so i will live by that faith not by sight not by what i see i'm gonna live by faith you see now why in hebrews he quotes that earlier bit. In a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. He's coming, but you can't see it now. What you see now, Hebrews, is you see the persecution and the temptation to go back to the temp temple sacrifices. That's what you see now. God's got a bigger picture. And you don't see it. Don't you wish God would just tell you why? Why have you given me this trial? Why do I have to go through this? Why that now? Why? We must be the most annoying children, mustn't we? When our kids say to us, why, why, why? Of course, the classic response as a parent is, because I said so. But I think the response from God is similar, yet very distinctly different. It's, remember who I am. Remember who I am. We are not, verse 39, those who shrink back and are destroyed. <sighs> For them, it was a literal destruction that was about to come. The temple, the city, everything in it, the whole system they were tempted to go back to, all about to be destroyed. He says, that's not us. He's exhorted them, he's warned them, he's encouraged them, and he ends it all in verse 39 and says, we are not those people. We're not the ones who are going to shrink back and are going to be there when that temple comes down. I don't think they know that was about to fall. I don't think they, they knew that that was, that was imminent, that was about to happen. But God did. 
You see, if he told us why, it wouldn't be faith, would it? God, why are you doing this to me? Oh, well, the reason I'm doing this is because of this. The reason I'm doing that because... Oh, that makes sense. Cool. Yeah, I'll go with that. It's not faith anymore, is it? It's understanding. It's sight. We're not going to be those who shrink back, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let the world take what it wants from you. Let sovereign God who controls the world, who, by whom everything that happens, he allows, trust him. Let, let your possessions go, let your health go, let everything in life that you attempted to treasure, to cling on to and to worship, just let it go. But preserve your soul. It's so much more important. We're not those people, he says. We are people of faith. Sounds like it's about time for a whole section on faith. That's chapter 11, and we'll be there next time. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, <clears throat> we thank you so much for your, your word, your goodness, and Lord, I know how hard, how difficult it is that when everything goes wrong, when everything's difficult, when life is just unbearably hard, that we would turn, that we would shrink back, that we would not hold fast. Father, may we not. May we be people of faith who in the midst of great trials say, I know my Redeemer and I trust in him. Amen.